Hello, and welcome back to The Depth Charge with your host, Dr. Julian Michael, psychologist of myth, dream, imagination, and human potentials. Today, we will pick up the myth of Zagreus, where we left off last week, which was with the maiden goddess Kor in the cave to which her mother Deo had brought her, kept company only by the silent handmaiden, the two great serpent dragons who guarded the cave mouth, and that weaving loom on which the goddess Athena, in spider form, had taught the maiden goddess how to weave thread. So if you haven't listened to that previous episode, I suggest that you go and do so now, since today's storytelling is a continuation directly from that tale. Now let's take a moment before we jump into today's myth to consider this in a larger cultural context. I mentioned in the previous episode that the myth of Zagreus seems to be closer to the older pre-Olympian mythic tradition of the Greek land and the area around it. So in this light, it is very interesting to compare this myth to the later story of Persephone with which people today are mostly much more familiar. In that later version of the Persephone story that you've probably heard, the maiden goddess is abducted by Hades, the king of the underworld, who comes for her while she is out picking flowers in a field. And Hades, the god of the underworld, comes out of nowhere like a fierce demon in a chariot from the sky, or he opens up the ground to swallow Persephone whole, something like that. And that is how she is brought to the underworld where Hades rules. And then as this quite well-known story goes, he traps her in that underworld by tricking her into eating the food of the underworld, which is usually portrayed in this story now as pomegranate seeds, but this detail is uh, somebody's later embellishment. In fact, this whole Hades-Persephone myth that is sort of a staple of modern tellings of the Greek tradition can really be considered as something of an embellishment, and specifically an embellishment by the later Olympian Greek culture, which I have discussed in the previous episode, it's, it's a modification on this older mythic tradition of which the myth of Zagreus, the story we're telling now, is a closer to faithful kind of example. So indeed, the Orphic mystics often liked the Zagreus story. They said that one of the reasons they liked this kind of myth was because they saw it, even then, as a window into a more ancient and less corrupted form than these later Olympian interpretations, like the Hades-Persephone version. So one thing, if we're going to compare these, these stories, these versions, one thing to note is that this closer to indigenous version, you could say, the one we're telling now, does not have the maiden goddess abducted at all. So we should note, if we think about the last week's beginning of the story, she's not snatched off to the underworld. She's already in the underworld. 
when, when we get to this point. Because the underworld is this very initiatory cave that she's been brought to by her mother that belongs to her, that is guarded by her own dragons. And, and as I said, that she's been led to by her mother. So by extension, you might say, by a kind of mother lineage that reaches back through countless generations of this goddess tradition into a primordial past. And I think this is a very psychologically important fact because, of course, nobody really likes to be delivered to the underworld, which is to say these kind of underworldly, difficult, initiatory experiences. Nobody likes that. But the way we interpret these experiences when they happen, it depends a lot on our narrative, on our story. So it's one thing for a maiden to be initiated into a difficult passage that is her own birthright, hopefully with the help, as in this story, of her mother or mothers and her, her aunt or teachers, like Athena. And how very different this is than the experience or the story of the victimized or abducted goddess who is tricked by this older male god, as in the Hades story. So even it's, it's so different, even though these two versions are made essentially out of the same, you could say, the same mythic substance, or you could say woven from the same mythic threads. Now, this older and closer to indigenous version of the maiden goddess is also not to be found wandering around in some field, picking flowers, quite passively in a sense. Because in our story, she is rather very busy in her the work of her own life in her own initiatory cave. She's been busy learning from her aunt, her teacher, Athena, and she's been very busy practicing, mastering the art of weaving, going through her experience. Now, some people might object to this whole motif of weaving as seeming like a very domestic kind of femininity, maybe even disempowering or disempowered. So I think it's very important to recognize at this point that weaving in traditional mythic terms is actually considered something extremely powerful. Because weaving is a kind of magic. It's a kind of sorcery. It's related to myth itself, to mythic power, to poetic power. It's also related to the power, the magic of destiny, something very much like the magic of star reading that in our last episode, the sage Astraeus practiced. So indeed, the word cosmic in its original sense, as in the cosmic, the, the stars, the cosmos, but this word cosmic can actually be applied equally to weaving thread. That might seem like a jump, but check it out. The original root of cosmos is the same 
as the root for cosmetic. That is to say, it refers to something aesthetic, to an artistic creation. And this relates to a very ancient sense that reality itself is a kind of multi-layered tapestry that's in the living process of being woven or of weaving itself. Now, the Romans will later come along and they will coin the term universe. Uni meaning single or one, and verse meaning story or song. So, a single story, a single song, a single unified world. But this older Greek term, cosmos, suggests a more complex vision of reality, as if reality is a tangle of many threads or many layers of paint all interacting, like interlocking worlds all pulling in different directions and together creating something very alive. And if this is the nature of reality, then one might think that one could use one's own mind and hands to pull at these cosmic threads, to play, you might say, at the weaving loom. That is magic. So some examples. The Greek fates were generally considered to be a more ancient and powerful force than any god, and they were often seen as women spinning thread. And the Norse, the Vikings, had very similar stories about the witchy Norns, who were also ancient weavers of destiny and considered extremely powerful. And they also had a class of priestesses and sometimes also male shamans who were similarly known to work this kind of magic through weaving. So it is a very old and very widespread image, this kind of subtle power of the loom, of the weaving, that has most often been associated with women, but has also sometimes been practiced by a certain class of gifted and subtle men. So what a trick it is, huh? What a trick it must have been to go from this kind of understanding of the magic of weaving to the later vision of the loom as a symbol of disempowering female domesticity. But for the young goddess Kor here in ancient Greece, who learned her weaving first from her mother, the earth goddess, and then from the divine mistress of craft herself, the great teacher Athena, this kind of hard-earned mastery of the weaving loom was no more disempowering than the exile in the cave of initiation itself. Because both of these kind of events belong deeply to an age-old process of initiation into womanhood, or goddesshood in this case. They both belong deeply to the journey of the goddess herself. Now with this in mind, we can continue with our story, The Myth of Zagreus, Part 2. As days became weeks, and weeks became months, Kor continued to master what she had learned from the goddess Athena, the complex art of weaving on her loom. Over time, 
Her fingers learned the ways of those subtle threads and danced with the details on their own. So more and more, her mind was free to examine the larger tapestry even as she worked, to see the colors and shapes taking form like mysterious figures emerging from a mist. So the days in the cave became timeless and dreamlike. And along with the dreamlike days, the goddess's own dreams began to intensify so that she lived a kind of double life. Days weaving in the cave and nights of strange and vivid adventures in her dreams. If you have ever spent much time alone, you might have also experienced something of this effect. And so it was that Kor was not surprised one night when there began a particularly intense and realistic kind of dream. Only, this dream was a little different than any she had had before, for it began in the very same cave in which she slept. In this dream, she watched as she rose up out of her own body, and like a wisp of fog on a breeze, she slipped out the entrance of that cave and into the leaf-scattered moonlight of the river valley outside. Then, breathing in the cool air of the night, she watched in dreaming silence as the silhouette of a man appeared among the crowded trees of the riverbank as if he had come from out of the river. She watched as he paused to glance around, as he sniffed at the air, as he approached then, slowly, the entrance of the cave, very near to where Kor invisibly stood. The guardian dragons then sensed the man. Slowly they rose up, stretching like serpents. Each turned to fix one eye upon the stranger, glaring an ancient warning. Kor thought the stranger would surely be devoured in the next instant, for she knew how like lightning the great serpents would be when they decided to strike. Yet before they could do so, she saw the man begin to tremble. Then he shook. As the serpents watched, his spine began to move in ways she did not think a man could move. And as he began to dance this alien dance, his body changed. Soon there was no more man at all, but only a third serpent, a third dragon who rose up to meet the two guardians of the cave. But they did not attack him, for even as the new dragon began to dance, the long coils of the guardians had similarly begun to move in some instinctive reflection, so that the undulations of all three were like waves of the ocean, synchronized by an unseen flow. And so the three danced until time lost all meaning, and dreaming Kor watched all, transfixed, until finally there was a crescendo, and the dance slowed, and the serpents stilled, and the stillness 
slid into sleep. And the maiden goddess knew the feeling of the serpent man's lips pressed against hers, for she too had sometime become a serpent. And so she learned the secrets that only serpents know. A pause here for reflection. Now, if it's not clear, Kor is no longer a maiden goddess. She has become a woman goddess. Firstly, she became that through her own mother line initiation and mastery in her own cave. And now, subsequently, she has become a woman goddess in union with this male stranger, this unknown god. Now, how extraordinarily distinct it is, this image of the rather vulnerable man who approaches these ancient dragons of the goddess's cave. It's so distinct from the later image of an Olympian god who swoops down invincibly on his chariot from above, or who opens the earth like a jaw from below to swallow the maiden whole. In this older image, it is rather the god who has to be afraid of being devoured whole, for it's the maiden to whom these ancient dragon forces belong. Now, one might still have judgments here about an older male god who seduces a virgin goddess, particularly as we will find out because this god is in fact already married. But whatever his transgressions, there can really be no question here of abduction or any kind of coercion. Rather, the goddess's passion and sensuality come across very clearly. And to go a little further, coercion really is rather unimaginable, given the fierce shadow of the mother dragons overhead. So with that said, who is this male stranger? Now we know that the later Olympian version will call him Hades. And we also know, as I discussed in the previous episode, that the ancient mystics connected to this tradition would say that Hades is Dionysus. So in that sense, the idea that Persephone, who is after all an ancient pre-Olympian fertility goddess, and the idea that she ends up marrying Hades, who is also Dionysus, and Dionysus is the ancient pre-Olympian fertility god, well, this makes a lot of sense. But unfortunately, this gets a bit more confused because in the versions of the myth of Zagreus that come down to us, the recorded versions, the male stranger is actually called Zeus. And we know Zeus as the Olympian sky god, the storm god, and the king of Olympus. And he's definitely not the same character as this Hades Dionysus, 
this sort of underworldly fertility figure who's originally one god, but he's not Zeus. These are, these are two different kings. So what's going on here? Well, the thing is that the Olympian Greeks had this habit of assigning the name Zeus to any king of the gods whose mythology they absorbed. So they would assume that the king of gods that they found in any other land must be Zeus going by another name. And so they'd rename him, and they, in their own story version of it, they'd just call him Zeus. And this might have been more or less convenient when dealing with uh, similar kinds of patriarchal sky gods who might essentially be Zeus twins, more or less, from a similar mythic heritage. But the problem is that the older indigenous tradition of the land did not have the king of the gods as a patriarchal sky god like Zeus. He was rather this more ancient, more shamanic, more underworldly kind of fertility partner of the earth goddess. In other words, he was this kind of Dionysus Hades figure of life and death and wilderness. So in this sense, the Olympian habit of calling any king of the gods Zeus ends up confusing the point even more than calling him Hades does. So because of this ambiguity, I'm going to leave the identity of this male god within our story today deliberately open. I'm going to refer to him throughout the story just as the king. For in whatever version we go with, he is certainly the king. And in some ways, you could say that it is the changing meaning of this kingship that is at stake. That is, just as culture has changed, so the face of the king of the gods seems to shift even as we look at him, like the face of a shadowy father figure appearing, sometimes kind, sometimes cruel, in the shape-changing depths of a dream. So our story continues. A meeting of the ancient serpents of the god and the goddess is not like a human union. Children are not just a possibility following the serpent dance. They are a certainty. And so the goddess Kor became pregnant, and she was well taken care of by her handmaiden, as well as by her mother, who now frequently came to visit. And so she was able to pass the time of her pregnancy weaving for there was much to prepare before the arrival of the child. And after the usual passage of time, Kor gave birth within that very same river cave. When the child was born, he was a boy child, and he was strong and healthy. But from his head grew two little magic horns. Now, many mothers, upon seeing those horns, would have screamed and done who knows what terrible things. But fortunately, Kor was not other mothers, and she was not surprised that her child was unique. She simply went back to the loom and reworked the various hoods and caps that she had made, reshaping them to properly fit 
her baby's unique head. And it was good that Kor loved her unusual boy, for as he grew, so did a strange magic grow inside him. Where other children might like to crawl around barking with the village dogs, pretending to be a dog, Kor watched her child often speaking quite clearly with the wild animals in the forest. And more, they clearly understood everything he said. And whereas other children might dress up in costumes and play games of pretend, Kor watched her child study his reflection in the sunlit waters of the river. And as she watched, she saw his features subtly change, taking on aspects of different animals and people whom he had met. The tufted ears of an owl, the golden green eyes of a forest cat, the long beard of the sage Astraos, who had once come accompanying her mother on a visit. Kor would watch her little boy staring at his own face as it changed this way and that, and then suddenly he would burst into delighted laughter at some secret inner joke or private revelation. He loved these games of self-reflection far more than he enjoyed other children, who in spite of his mother's efforts to properly socialize him, did not seem to interest him at all. Now another mother might have worried that her child was growing up to be such an unusual person. Kor was, fortunately, not another mother, and she allowed her magic boy to play in the realms in which he clearly felt most at home. And this included the forest all around the river at which they lived, for he was clearly just as at home in that forest as he was in their cave. And he swam like a fish and climbed like a cat, and so she gave him her trust and allowed him his wild nature. Thus, little Zagreus, for that happened to be the boy's name, found himself free to wander the paths of the wood all by himself. And so one day, he was following a mountain goat who had explained that it was out searching for interesting new taste sensations. And little Zagreus found himself wandering further from home than he had ever been before. He wandered so far that eventually he found himself in another river glen, a valley of unfamiliar sounds and smells, and it was starting to get very late in the day so that the sun began to set, and the little boy realized he had better start looking for a place to sleep. And so the boy climbed up a hill, and on top of that hill, there was the biggest tree he had ever seen. And he thought, I will climb this tree so that I can get a good look at the valley and find a safe place to sleep. But wouldn't you know it, when he climbed up to the top of that tree, he discovered, nestled in its branches, the biggest treehouse you could ever imagine. Really, it was more like a tree palace. And upon entering through the front door of that palace, which had, it turned out, many rooms and halls and fireplaces and kitchens and so on, 
little Zagreus quickly found a very comfortable chair that was covered in big, warm, soft animal furs. And he curled up on those furs and he fell asleep. Now, it so happened that this wasn't just anyone's house. It was the king's house. And it so happened that this wasn't just anyone's chair. It was the king's chair. The king happened to be away hunting that night. So Zagreus had found this very comfortable chair empty and just the right size for a little boy to curl up comfortably and sleep. And when dawn came and the king's servants found him there, a great cry went up and the whole house was in an uproar because not only was little Zagreus an intruder in the palace, but it is always considered a crime for anyone but the king to sit in the king's chair. The queen, who had been home the whole time, was awakened by this uproar. And so when she came downstairs, she discovered all the servants in a tizzy, and this little boy, still blinking the sleep from his eyes, sitting atop the furs that covered the throne of the king. Now one should note here that the queen was a woman who cared a great deal about things like good manners and doing things just so. And she instantly disliked the wild-looking boy with dirt on his shins and even worse, fierce little horns growing out of his head. Immediately, she ordered him whipped and thrown out like a stray dog. And the servants had just set upon him to do this when at that moment, the king walked back through the open door, back from his triumphant hunt. Don't you touch that child, the king's voice boomed out across the great hall. On pain of death, that child is not to be harmed. But husband, the queen answered back, this intruder sits on the royal throne. You know as well as I that we are all bound by the law. That is true, said the king. We are all bound by the same law. But no law has been broken here. Do you not see the horns on that child's head? Do you not see how easily he is sitting on my throne? Look, even now he has begun to play with the staff of the winding serpent that I left leaning against the side of my throne when I went hunting. That boy still has not a care in the world, even now. And do you know why? Because he is my son, and he is sitting exactly where he is meant to be. And with this revelation, the queen hated that boy even more. For while she already knew that her husband sometimes went around with other women, it was one thing to know it, and another to wake up in your own house with the offspring of that kind of indiscretion there in front of everyone. You see, the thing the queen hated more than anything else was public humiliation. And while it may not have been fair to little Zagreus, the darkness of that humiliation took shape in the queen's heart 
as a terrible hatred for that little boy who looked to her like nothing so much as a wild little animal or a half-beast demon, devil horns and all. And she thought the world would certainly be better off if this cursed child were not in it. Even as she thought this, the king was busy declaring out loud that little Zagreus was not only a prince, for there were other princes from other mothers in other lands, but furthermore, that this child was the heir to the throne and the next king. For whatever the king's flaws, and indeed he had many, he cared for the realm. And as he explained to the whole court, little Zagreus's magic horns were a sign foretold by ancient prophecy, a sign that this boy was destined to rule in the coming age of golden abundance and peace for all. As the queen listened to her husband spouting this nonsense, she was sharpening her spite into a secret weapon. But little Zagreus, for all his special magic, saw nothing of the queen's hatred. For wisdom about this kind of twisting cruelty of the human heart was at that time still unknown to him. And so when he went back to his own mother in their river valley, he just told her very happily that he had finally met his father, the king, and that he was now heir to the throne. And so the goddess Kor learned then that the shadowy stranger who had visited her and given her a child once in a very vivid serpent dream had in fact been the king of the gods. And that as the star reader Astraos had prophesied years before, her own little Zagreus was destined to bless the whole world. And this brings us to a close of this week's episode. The story of Zagreus will continue next week with its third and final installment. For now, I invite this closing meditation. It is very easy to judge the bitter queen who projects so much violence toward an innocent child. It's much more difficult to examine ourselves and consider where do we get like this? Where do we become poisonous toward the innocent? Have you ever met someone who seemed so free or so attractive or so talented so naturally that you felt you could just never measure up? Have you felt how easy it can be to begin to judge a person like that, to justify your worst feelings? Have you ever wanted, on some level, to see the most blessed people fall? Envy is a very powerful and very widespread human emotion. It is a kind of bitter poison that we all know is unkind and unfair, and yet few of us 
ever completely escape it. So what should we do when this kind of feeling of envy rises up in us? Next time you feel the bitterness of envy rising up, try this. Try imagining what it's like to be as free as wild little Zagreus. What would it be like to be so full of your playful, natural, wild experience that there was simply no room to compare with anyone else's? Can you feel like that child exploring a wild world, a wild wilderness? Can you feel how every being, when you're like little Zagreus, is like a wild animal, a fascinating and unique alien? Can you feel how comparison in a wilderness like this loses its meaning? If you can feel how positive and negative judgment become sort of irrelevant, that's when you know you've gotten a taste of that Zagrian freedom, the freedom of the golden age that prophecy foretold that is even now stirring to life within you. This has been The Depth Charge with psychologist Julian D. Michaels. This is a new podcast, and you can help us continue this exciting project by giving us five stars and sharing these episodes with others for their enjoyment and benefit. This is a free podcast made out of love and passion. And if you have the ability to contribute, we gratefully receive your support at patreon.com slash wake the imagination. Patronage comes with additional content and access, including a series of meditations for personal transformation by Dr. Julian Michaels. Furthermore, anyone can access the first of these meditations simply by signing up for the Depth Charge weekly newsletter at wakeTheImagination.com and receiving the link directly in your inbox. So until the next time we speak, may the best of your dreams continue to reveal themselves. Have a blessedly enchanted week. <laughs>